Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been involved in the food industry in Europe and here in the US for more than 20 years now. And every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scene and the new ingredients or flavors that they are experimenting with. You can find the show notes of all the episodes at flavorsunknown.com and click on the episode page. If you are just listening for the first time, last week my guest was Chef Brian Ahern from Buff House in Chicago. Please subscribe to the podcast to make sure that you are not missing any upcoming episodes. We have a special guest today. I am really pleased to have celebrity chef Jose Garces on the show. He is going to share with us his personal experience going through difficult times in 2018. He's going to tell us about his Hispanic heritage and how it influenced his food. That Amada, his first restaurant in Philadelphia, was written as a culinary school business plan project. And he's going to obviously share his passion for food development and, you know, food innovation. Hi, Chef. How are you? Doing good, Emmanuel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are very excited to have you on Flavors Unknown, to have you on the show. It's a special moment for me. Ah, uh, well, equally special. I'm, I'm glad to be participating. It sounds like a, it sounds like a blast. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, I want to um, start by addressing, I don't want to say it's the elephant in the room, but there's a lot of things that have been said, you know, about you. And, uh, you know, you had this tough situation you were in 2008 when you had all those restaurants closing and as well lawsuits. So I do not really want to drill into it, but I just would like to know, you know, what did you learn, you know, from that situation? Yeah, sure. You know, I think, you know, a lot of things have been said, there's been articles written, there's, there's a lot to it. And, you know, the, the bottom line is that we have, you know, our business, our industry is, is a tough business. You know, profit margins are tight. The labor pool is low. It's tough to get, you know, really great people. We had a couple unfortunate events that occurred in my company. So I, I started and founded my company in 2005 with one restaurant, Amada, down on, uh, in Philadelphia, down on Second and Chestnut. And over a 13 year span, we, you know, we had grown probably to about 20 to 25 restaurants at one point, a full service catering company. I had a farm in Bucks County and a foundation that supported the uh, underserved immigrant community of Philadelphia. So had built up a really nice base, what I felt was a, a great organization that I was really proud of. And we had a couple unfortunate events in business that really triggered kind of a, a, a chain reaction, a financial chain reaction. One being we were we had four restaurants at the property in Atlantic City called Rebel. And they were, the restaurants were doing fine, but unfortunately the hotel and casino aspect of it was not. And that those four restaurants contributed to a big part of our financial success and health in the company. So in 2014, that hotel and casino and on really short notice closed, shuttered the doors. And with that shuttering also our, our four restaurants and our, you know, a, a big part of our, you know, financial infrastructure. We doubled down in New York at Amada down in Brookfield Place. And, you know, we just didn't hit our numbers, unfortunately. And so those two main events really triggered an unfortunate event for us as a, as a business. But we emerged with a great partnership with a group out of Louisiana called uh, Ballard Brands, Ballard Hospitality. We merged Ballard and Garces to form Ideation Hospitality, which is now, you know, kind of the best of both worlds. Our brands, our culinary know-how, our ideation, 
with the business support of Ballard Brands. So it's an exciting time for me as a chef, as a company, and really looking forward to building upon the foundation that I've put in place over the last 13 years. Do you think that the situation of, as you said, creating your first restaurant in 2005, correct? Yeah. And then, you know, having this very rapid growth until, you know, 18, when you have, I think, ended like 16, you know, restaurants. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, you know, this restaurant, this growth was too fast and too quick and it was not easy, you know, to handle and manage? I just want to understand it's because people that have in the restaurant business and they are looking at expansion and growth and uh, what are the things that they need to be mindful of? 100%. And I think, you know, it goes without saying that I'm, it was very humbled by the experience, you know, very appreciative of kind of the, the end result that, that it happened, but it's still, it was a very, you know, humbling experience and with a lot of learning lessons that I'm, that I'm taking with me and, and moving forward. So what is like maybe the main lessons that you can Well, you I can would share? say, you know, I think, you know, to really understand what had transpired. And again, we had a lot of success coming out of the bat with Amada. We opened Amada in 2005. I had had a few ideas that I wanted to put out there. So our, our modern Mexican restaurant at the time, Distrito, I opened a, a Chinese Peruvian restaurant called Chifa as well as Tinto, a Basque wine bar, and Village Whiskey. And all of those are still open. And they were the f- kind of the first restaurants that I had um, concepted and, and put it put out there and really proud of them. And I think during that time, I won a James Beard Award in 2009. I became an Iron Chef as well in 2009. And those, those events also catapulted my success and, and opportunities. And I would say, you know, during that time, I thought I was being very selective in terms of the opportunities. And probably, you know, I would say I was more opportunistic versus strategic. So, you know, as a young, still a young chef entrepreneur, I was still, you know, very probably full of myself more than, more than I should have been. And so I think looking back, I probably would have wished I was a little more strategic about the brands that we were growing, the locations that we were getting into and kind of the brand partnerships as well. So I think that, you know, if you, if you're a young chef and you're experiencing some success, I would say, you know, really appreciate that success. Be cautious about your, your next moves and definitely think about strategy. Feel free to form a small advisory board that can really look at your business model and and give you unbiased sound advice. So, you know, and even if it's like, you know, one or two or three people that, you know, really you trust and have other outside business success, I think it's it's well worth your time. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes you can't predict certain things. And that's also a part of the business that you have to live with. How did you manage, you know, success and becoming a so-called, you know, celebrity chefs, you know, after James Beard and the Iron Chef? I mean, I felt like I managed it myself pretty well. I kept, you know, a humble, kind of a humble approach, a work-like approach to my craft. You know, we were, you know, we had a lot of pride in our company and being an employee-based, you know, employees first kind of culture. And really preaching like Latin inspired hospitality. And at the same time, you know, practicing, practicing my craft. And, and, I, and it was, you know, I'm super still very passionate about food and, and food development, where food is heading. So that passion has never wavered. It's, and so when you think about success, when you are passionate about the culinary aspect or food, it just, it keeps you grounded. Because it's such a, it's still a, a humble craft in many ways. You know, you're working with your hands, you're cooking with fire, and it's just, it's not, you know, certainly not rocket science or anything of that. And so it's, it's a humbling craft. And I think that helped keep me grounded throughout the success. So you're talking about, you're fascinated and passionate about where do you see, you know, food go? If there's any, 
dining trends that you see, you know, on the rise? One of the most important ones and the, and the biggest one that I'm, I'm seeing currently is just that food delivery and, you know, high, high level or elevated food experiences coming to your home, much like what happened in the, in the retail sector of things where, you know, online shopping be, get such a big share of the market. I, I'm just starting to s- see that. I and mean, it's been going on for a few years now, but I, I'm a little fearful of that. Honestly, I'm in a restaurant business, so I still want people to come out to eat, but I, at the same time, embrace it. And, you know, the, the, the beauty of where I'm at right now in my career is that I have the ability to kind of shape and choose where I want to be in food coming up. And so understanding that and embracing that people want to have these elevated experiences at home and delivered. And so how do we get there? How do we? So how is going to be? you know, your fingerprints, you know, on this, how Chef Jose Garces is going to uh, participate into this uh, trend. You know, I launched a fast casual taqueria, kind of a prototype several years ago called Buena Onda. You know, the beauty of partnering with uh, the Ballard hospitality folks, the Ballard brothers was they have that experience. They, they have a hundred, about 150, possibly more, Units of two brands, PJ's Coffee and Wow American Eats. And so they understand, they've been in the space and they understand it. And so honestly, one of the biggest allures for me to them was that they understood this space and that I had this brand, you know, went on. And I also have the ability to create other, call it fast casual quick serve brands. So getting, getting quick serve really in a, you know, in a, in a modern way to our consumers is something that excites me. So Buena Onda is our fast casual taqueria. We have one location on Callow Hill and 19th so are we in going Philadelphia. To see that expand throughout yes, the U.S. in the future? Absolutely. Yeah. Right, great. We've always said like, okay, how does Buena Onda translate to St. Louis, Missouri? Like, you know, it works in Philly, but how can it, how can we get it there? So we've been thinking a lot about the product, the menu, the kitchen design and the flow and delivery and disposable wares and all these things that really affect the experience and kind of where things are today, you know, 2019. So how is the tacos different in St. Louis versus, you know, Philly? The tacos hopefully are the same. The same, okay. Because they, they need to be delicious whether they're in Philly or St. Okay. Louis. But it's how do we get our folks in St. Louis who, you know, can, you know, look at this concept and be able to reproduce it in a way that's still authentic and, and true to the brand. So that's the part I think that's always the most challenging, but we're up to the, we're up to the challenge. And so it's, that's, that's exciting. And I think, you know, I'd love to, you know, deliver that experience. And I just think there's, there's room, there's room in the market. There certainly are big players out there, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm competitive. I, I, I always have, but I think that's why I, really enjoyed Iron Chef because it, it was the time when I knew I was going into battle or going into kitchen stadium and I might, you know, my, the butterflies in my stomach were, were floating and my just kind of all of my culinary and cooking senses were alive. And so I think that competitiveness that just kind of stirs within me. Where does this competitiveness come from? <laughs> you know, I grew up in Chicago born and raised i played um i played football and i wrestled in uh grammar school and high school and it was always you know it was just there i i i enjoyed it and it was you know both kind of combative sports both a little call it let's say aggressive and so how do you how does that translate over to cooking you know somehow i found it in, in competitive cooking so talking about Going back in time, and so what compelled you to uh, to become a chef? Because I didn't think that you started with that in mind. Correct? No, I did not. I actually had my first job was at an Italian banquet hall in Chicago called Pizzaferro's, and I was I think I was only fourteen. I was bussing tables, or and but that was my first exposure to like a commercial kitchen or like what you know a, a banquet kitchen looks like. Didn't even think much of it. It was more of a means. And I was a, 
I've worked since I was eight years old. I started with a paper route as as a kid, and and you know always Child labor. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Child labor was in full effect in Chicago. I think. <laughs> you know, and I was always um, an entrepreneur too. I I used to throw parties in high school, and that was the main source of my my revenue. I would throw parties. We would sell sell cups. So you can have a beer, let's say, okay. from time to time, a little. Uh, but that was, I was, you know, kind of an event planner. An event, wow. uh, and so it was not to get the girls. It was like to get money. Yeah, it was <laughs> to, <both>, yeah, <laughs> combination of, of, of the two. And, um, and that's where, you know, I think a little of the hosting and entertaining. But, you know, honestly, the, being a chef was, was the furthest thing on my mind until I, I went to a few years of undergrad and I still was kind of disillusioned with school and direction and where I'm, where I was going until I went to, I stumbled upon a culinary school in Chicago, Kendall, Kendall College. It was in Evanston at the time. And I just saw like, you know, the, the uniforms, the white hats, the crisp aprons, the kind of uniformity, the kind of the discipline that I found in high school athletics. And it just spoke to me and I didn't even, to me, it was still like a vocation, like, oh, I'm going to go learn how to be a chef and I can pay my bills and, you know, s- start a life. But I started cooking with the ingredients, you know, it was in our skills classes and I'm, you know, I'm looking at ingredients, I'm playing with them. And all of a sudden I realized I have like a creative edge over my colleagues. I'm, I'm making things differently. I'm thinking about food differently and I'm, uh, preparing things at home, like on my own and in, in many ways and cooking like around the clock. And I'm just finding a passion for this craft that I didn't even know existed. It was just, it was there. So I feel very, very fortunate that I found that because otherwise, I don't know, I don't know what I'd be doing <laughs> right now. <laughs> so in fact, now you have 12 restaurants. And uh, I would like you to talk a little bit about, you know, Amada, which is your first one. So if you can describe a little bit what it is and, and as well, Volver. And I think as well, it will be interesting to mention, obviously, the, your latest one that just opened, you know, in your hope, uh, Stella. Yes. So Amada, you know, it's, it's where my culinary career started. I, my last semester of cooking school, we had we had to do a business project or a business plan on a, a restaurant that we would open at some point in our career. And I actually chose a Spanish tapas concept. So I wrote the menu after working for the star group for four years in Philadelphia. I'd moved there. I'd opened two restaurants with Steven Starr and Douglas Rodriguez and one with just Steven and I called Alves. And I realized I wanted to open my own spot. I chose to do Spanish tapas, even though Steven said, you're crazy. <laughs> Nobody in Philadelphia likes that much pork. They're not going to go. <laughs> and there were really no Spanish restaurants. And so Amada is the name of my grandma, Mamita Amada. And she was a very um, special lady. She was the matriarch of our family, taught everybody how to cook. It was just, just a special relationship. I, you know, she used to come visit me in Chicago. We would, I would cook with her and just, yeah, she was passionate. And so, I named the restaurant after her and it was just had a great time with it ever since. There's a certain aura or energy about the restaurant when you walk into it. It just feels good. It feels warm. And I, I truly believe that there is, I don't believe in the paranormal all that much, but I do have a sense when I go in there that there the is. Where you're going, yes. Yeah, that there is something there. Or she's um, watching there. Possibly. Yeah, possibly, over you. Yes. Uh, Volver is our, it's a, our Forbes five-star fine dining restaurant. It's in the Kimmel Center, the Performing Arts Center in Philly. You know, it doubles, double duty. We use it for our culinary innovation lab as well during the day. And we do a ton of ideation and menu conception, menu development work in, in that space. It's really, um, you know, so for instance, this year with all the various restaurants and all of the different menus and concepts, you can imagine that there is a lot of change that needs to happen regularly. And it's a lot of, it's a diverse group of cuisines. So I have a team of a culinary director, Greg Ciprioni, another 
He's actually a VP. His title's so long, I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> but and we have another great chef, Nate Johnson. So the three of us and the CDC of each restaurant, we have a whole, you know, it's an interesting process of how we create. Yeah, we'll talk about that uh, that aspect a bit, you know, later. Yeah, and so you know, a lot of that happens there at Volvera during the day, and then we serve great meals there at night. So it's a fun place. And then Stella is a project that's been in the works for a long time. Our partners there were building an an inn, a restaurant, an event venue right on the Delaware. It's in New Hope, Pennsylvania. It's about an hour north of Philly, 45 minutes to an hour and about an hour south of New York. So it's a it's a great weekend getaway or weekday whenever you have some time, especially in the spring, summer and fall. And uh, I'm cooking American small plates there. What does that mean? Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, for for years, I've, you know, focused on concepts, different concepts. It could be anything from Spanish tapas to Mexican cantina to a burger and bourbon bar to our call it shore house sea, seafood house oyster bar called old bar. But you know, the American small plates and I've been cooking small plates for a long time. I really, you know, I think coming out of cooking school, I really didn't wasn't thrilled with the appetizer entree format that was out there. I always, even when as a cook, I couldn't stand cooking these giant portions of food. I just felt like it was just way too gluttonous and over over the top. So I I always felt like small portions, small plates, lots of flavors on the table and a lots of different experiences more than you would get in your kind of standard format. So we're, you know, using that inspiration for Stella in terms of the style of menu and it's it's different. We have this what we call a spreads section that's a few different butters. We have a cacio e pepe butter, a smoked eggplant and rose pepper spread, a green garlic butter as well with garnishes, and this uh, homemade um, griddled sourdough bread that's griddled to order. We make that, we use a sourdough starter and it's like a fry bread, almost is like a, like a naan or a paratha Indian style bread, but it goes, it, like we do it right before it comes out, right right with our spreads. And then big vegetable and grain section, quinoa tabbouleh would be an example, a veggie fried rice with a fried duck egg with uh, using uh, heirloom Carolina, Carolina rice. I need to call and make a reservation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you got to come check it out. It's so good. And it's, it's, the place is so much fun. We're in New Hope, Pennsylvania, and it's a, it's a very cute town. It's very quaint. You know what I love about it is like I've been like slugging it out in Philly for for a long time <laughs> yeah. with you know new restaurant openings every you know every week every day somebody's opening a restaurant and it just it's refreshing to come out to an area where you know there may be like one or two openings a year and that's okay and that's good and I, and you know that feels really good from our less side less competition so, too a little so. less competitive <laughs> but still you know there's a yearning for for great food so we're in we're in a good place you have a latino background you have you know from ecuador can you tell us how the your heritage influence you know your food and your career yeah sure my Heritage, my, my parents both immigrated from Ecuador to Chicago in the late 1960s. So I grew up in a Ecuadorian American household. My mom cooked Ecuadorian meals. And I mentioned my grandma earlier, Amada. She would come most summers and cook regularly. So growing up in that environment where there's Latin flavors going on all the time was, was a huge, made a huge impact on me. And I gravitated towards the kitchen. I loved helping my mom. I loved, you know, helping her with her mashed potatoes, making cake batters, breading things, whatever she wanted me to do. I was, I was with her. It was uh, a special time and left a lasting impact. And again, I think that, you know, the use of cilantro or sofrito and, you know, cooking of beans, tamales, mitas, empanadas, arepas, all this, these are all foods I grew up with. So, even to this day, I still make all those things for my children. And, you know, and now we're seeing market trends where they're becoming more accessible and more widely recognized. So that's exciting as well. 
of course. So if you we look at, uh, you know, the stats, uh, the population and the facts that, you know, the population of uh, Latino heritage is going to reach probably like 30% of the population by 2045. I think it was one of the latest. So how do you think American food is being influenced by, you know, Latino culture? Well, I think it's being influenced quite a bit. It's, you know, there are markets, obviously, in the U.S., whether it's in L.A., Chicago, so most, most major cities where you have a lot of different Latin countries represented. And I think, you know, gosh, New York is, is a great example. If you go to Queens, you can find a Colombian bakery, an Ecuadorian restaurant, an El Salvadorian pupusa shop. Obviously, Mexican cuisine is ingrained in American culture. It's as much American as it is Mexican these days. I just feel like people are so familiar with it. So there are Latin staples, Latin foods, Latin flavors that continue to be expressed. And so uh, for me, that's, that's really exciting because it's, the, it's kind of the world I've lived in for a long time. I'm hopeful to continue to share and spread Latin culture through food. So you have seen a lot of, you know, influence with like chiles, you know, like, uh, you know, from jalapeno to habanero to, you know, like, um, you know, new ones. And what, what Latino ingredients do you think, you know, are going mainstream in America? Can you mention, you know, some of them? Sure. Well, it might, might even be maybe not so much ingredients, but maybe preparations. Okay. So how about sofrito? Oh, yeah. Actually, so sofrito is kind of like the backbone of any soup, stock, sauce. And usually every Latin country has their own style. But, you know, in general, it's, you know, peppers, onions, garlic, and sometimes culantro or cilantro. And it's just, so I think that's like a, that's like a base that hopefully becomes like a, a staple throughout. So sofrito, we said it's almost like, the main bones of the Latino cuisine, like mirepoix, is like from the French. You know, That's cuisine. right. So, uh, so French mirepoix, or in New Orleans cooking, they call it the Holy Trinity, right? And in Asian cooking, I don't know if there's a term for it, but it's you know, you know, garlic and ginger, and you know, scallion is, and so there are you know, lemongrass. If you're if you're you know talking about Vietnamese cooking, so those there, I think that every culture has their own sofrito and it's it's the secret it really is the secret sauce in most most dishes that have a lot of umami or big flavor and it's that kind of backbone that just kind of helps support everything but i think what i love about latin cuisine and latin foods are you know our uses of herbs and fresh chilies as well for fresh heat i use cilantro and just about everything and i I, you know, I, I also express, you know, basil, Thai basil, chives, parsley, oregano, thyme, rosemary. I just, I love herbs. So wherever that, that comes across and wherever it's at, I think, again, to go back to, there's ingredients, but there's also, again, preparations. We talked a little bit about arepas, pupusas, these sort of preparations that I think are becoming more mainstream is what I'm looking for. And what do you think from your perspective, what's the biggest misconception that uh, people in America have about Latino cuisine? I think the biggest one is that it's spicier or hot, <laughs> which it's, it's really not. And it depends on where you're, where you're coming from, where, you know, I mean, it's the foods of Cuba are certainly different than the foods of, foods of Spain or, you know, the Chile foods of Chile or, or, or Argentina or Brazil. Sure. I mean, it's, you really can't, group at all but i think the biggest misconception is that it's hot or spicy and that's you know that's just not if you look at the whole country you know that makes central america and latin america which is about you know maybe 20 so basically i would say that like mexican cooking with their more 300 varieties of chiles and maybe peruvian you know where there's a lot of chiles so those two cuisines can have you know a lot of heat and and spice but the rest there's it's more mild. Really lot, it's more mild. There's not really a lot of like burning, you know, hot, you know, effect. Yeah. And I would say that's an accurate statement where in, in certain Mexican cooking, yeah. The, and it depends. 
regionally, it also changes as well. And in, in Mexico uh, and and Peruvians, they like their eat. They like their and they have their whole their own chilies, basically uh, aji panca, aji amarillo, aji rocoto. And I love uh, I love the Peruvian huacatay as well, the black mint. There's sauce bases that are made with peanuts and plantains from time to time, kind of an Andean culture. So how have you learned all those specifics from countries? You're based in Chicago. <laughs> uh, I know you have a Latino background, but from the discussion that we had you know, before this recording is he has obviously an expertise in all those countries. So I'm curious of, you know, yeah, how I did think you acquire that? I acquired the understanding early that you could travel and really learn about cuisine as part of, you know, as part of what you do as part of your career, that it's, and that the importance of travel and being inspired is, is kind of a, it's, it's a staple. So when I finished culinary school, I cooked in Spain. I was, I got a job through a, actually a priest in Spain who owned three restaurants and, uh, Man of the cloth, but man of the man of the euro yeah. as well. <laughs> you know, I think that experience kind of propelled me. So then, you know, after I had left Spain, I was like, "Wow, what an!" Am- it reflected on I'm like, "What an amazing experience that I had just to in learning the culture, learning really learning about the food from Spanish chefs, and getting a big appreciation for what that cuisine was." So then. I said to myself after that, well, if I'm going to learn about any of these cuisines, I'm going to go and visit. So I, I took that upon myself. So I traveled to Argentina, Buenos Aires, was in Uruguay, Mexico several times, back to Spain many times, Ecuador, Peru, the Caribbean, Cuba. And you worked there or? No, no I went. Like Culinary, yeah, culinary yeah. curation, yeah. travels, okay. inspiration. And it's a, it's a big part of how we, uh, can create because I think bringing those traditions back and translating them into a way that works for your market. It's a talent. It's a skill. And I think it's, it's something that I feel like myself and the team can do pretty well. And that's kind of our, it's a little bit of our advantage. And you did it even beyond, I would say, um, Latino influence because you have another, you know, restaurant, Okashi. Yeah, um, With is the um, an izakaya. Yes. So can you talk to us a little bit because it's a Japanese, you know, influence completely here. Yeah, you know, I um, when I won Iron Chef in two thousand nine, some of the battles go leading up to that win were in uh, Tokyo. So we filmed uh, two Lucky battles you. there. <laughs> yeah, so much fun. The food was so fantastic that I went back and I brought my brought my kids there and said, you know, like let's do a culinary tour. We went to Kyoto. We went to a mountain town, Matsumoto. I just really appreciate their the food culture, their appreciation for like the best ingredients. I once purchased a three hundred dollar mango at Takashimaya, and uh, <laughs> and you and know. It was beautifully wrapped. It was in a crate and had some like nice foam wrapping around it so the <laughs> flesh wouldn't bruise. It was amazing. It was, good. I don't know if I would pay $300 again for it, but it was so good. It was like the best mango I've ever had. And so I think that in being inspired by that, I always wanted to, you know, cook the food with all due respect and appreciation. And so we had an opportunity to open a restaurant in Atlantic City at the Tropicana hotel and uh, i decided to do so one restaurant there is alone which is a uh, kind of a coastal latin american seafood house and then okachi which is you know my take on a japanese izakaya but it really is it's more of like my take on the best things that i love about japanese cuisine which is kind of like their their small plates dumplings and some ribs and pickles and some karagi and then ramen, some yakitori, and sushi and maki. And so those are all, I kind of crammed it all into one menu and just, I'm having so much fun with it. We also have, we have a Japanese candy store. So when you walk in, I appreciate the candy culture in Japan. And so you walk into this 
Japanese candy store and you can't even tell there's a restaurant. You have to like go through the store to get into it. So it's um it's a fun place. We have some DJs that's been there on Friday night, kind of uh, great sake. Beautiful spot. Definitely go and check it out. So I would like to learn a bit more about your creative process. So can you give us an example, maybe of one of a recent dish that you have done, which was really a creative and what was the process you know, behind? Well, I'll tell you my opening, one of the opening menu items at Volver, this was a, a childhood memory I had. So my dad, when we were younger, would take us to, I have two, two brothers, an older and a younger, he would take us to Lake Michigan soccer play football jump in the lake it was like our, our afternoon sunday afternoon activity and he would buy kentucky fried chicken and bring it there and that was our lunch you know after we were playing so i had that memory and when i opened volver i said i want to recreate that somehow and maybe elevate it and so we took these beautiful squab that we were getting from locally from a farmer and stuffed the inside breast meat with uh, foie gras and farce from the squab leg and we made these beautiful biscuits the palm puree was kind of a robichon inspired palm puree a sweet corn sauce and a beautiful slaw and i had just put this whole memory of my childhood kind of on a plate and it was a, it was a beautiful thing for me it, it meant a lot and you know i think our guests really appreciated that like and like you know they enjoyed the dish they enjoyed the kind of elevation of it and kajuki fried chicken won't recognize it obviously <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> you talked before about you know volver that volver that is your um you know as well your culinary lab so i'm guessing a lot of those creation you know are happening yeah you know at that place so is it something that you are doing in a collaborative approach with other chefs that you have that working in the different restaurants yes What's the role of that test kitchen, you know, culinary lab over there? You know, I think that when we're either changing a menu or creating a new concept, the lab plays a, plays a big role. And really how it works is, so I have two kind of, I call it like culinary superstars that work with me because the food, food is really collaborative. When you're creating, it's so much better, I feel like, when it's, when it's a collaboration versus on your own. So. I'll have my two, what I call as my culinary ninjas, and then the chef of the restaurant. And we start to, if we're changing a menu, we're looking at a contribution analysis, which kind of gives us a breakdown, you know, a little more business background, a breakdown of what's selling, what's not. It's broken down into four categories, puzzles, dogs, plow horses, and stars. We usually look at the dogs right away. They're the ones that aren't just aren't selling and they, and they actually are probably higher in cost for us. That right away. And that's just broken out by sale. So there's a, there's a metrics. So it gives us a target might be eight, eight dishes, six to eight. We find is usually a good spot for a call it a seasonal change. So we do a summer, a spring, summer change and then a fall winter with kind of tweaks along the way. And so. The four of us will sit and we'll look at the, look at what needs to be changed. And then we'll start to look at our inspirations. So again, it could be, it could be travel. It could be a memory. It, it could be a cookbook. It could be a chef's work. It could be anything mm -hmm. really be produced from one of your local produce, providers. It could yep. be, yep. you know, yeah, a farmer that drops off like beautiful ramps and says, Hey, these are good. I have these for the next several weeks. Any of those items. And so, and then I ask everybody to, and put everything on a, what we call a, a one sheet or a development sheet. And those sheets are, uh, you know, they're incomplete, but there's, there's usually a full, full thought. And so any four of us could have for these six to eight target items, we could have four to six different ideas. So those all get put into a pot. I have the luxury of kind of cutting and trimming and seeing kind of where, you know, what makes sense to put into a test phase. And still at that point, things aren't fully complete. And what we'll have is dishes that have several elements. And then there could be other elements to the dish that we have available for. So once it gets to that kind of, okay, we have a blueprint, 
we put it into our test lab and there's we're all in the kitchen then at that point cooking all the different elements and then there's a there's a plating aspect of it and the plating actually i i find it to be very important because you people certainly eat with their eyes plating has evolved over time instagram i'm sure players an important instagrammable moments as well and so we all kind of take a crack at plating and then there's could be an element that's missed or, or added and then we end up somewhere there's a there's a point during that process that we all just know that we've we've hit the mark and it's pretty apparent and if it's not apparent we all look around and i could just tell just by the sense the energy in the room and like the the feeling the vibe we're getting from the plate it's not there so then it could be a version two or three that happens on the spot before we get there okay so and how often do you meet so you mean you mentioned that you are changing this during like on the in the seasons that you were mentioning so twice but uh, how often is that team meeting in the lab and experimenting yeah well i think you know we came out last fall and well, at the end of the summer and we said we took a bigger initiative this year than we have we said let's really revamp everything let's really focus and so we cooked for about seven months straight pretty much just getting i mean we're talking developing you know for stella that's 30 new ideas True. it was a yeah pure launch so yes, yes. tinto we decided to redo 80 percent of the menu oh, wow. so that was 20 new items amada got 10 old bar we did another like 10 or 15 new items in a concept and you know, it starts to add up. Okachi, we added maki, we revamped the small plates. And is so, it what you love to do? In yeah, your but that's it. But that's my passion. And that is the most fun part of this business is really the creation, the process and getting there. And, and we've had such a good, you know, assembling this team. I've had the team with me, both Greg and Nate, you know, combined 17 years, two of them. That's special. I think, you know, I, I was reminding them this year, like, hey, guys, you know, in our in in your career, we may not have this opportunity all the time. Just appreciate Absolutely. that. The, embrace that, it. Yeah. Embrace it. The three of us are here. We're doing this and and we're getting it's great what results. We love. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So obviously, you know, I, I hope to continue that, but it's it's been special. Okay. And um so what's the latest ingredient obsession that you are experimenting with? I'm looking forward to, we're going to be in Bucks County. I can't say that there's one ingredient that I'm obsessed with. I think I'm just looking forward to reconnecting with the local artisans and, you know, farm to table has been out there. People have done it, it's, it's that. but it is to live it and really do it is hard. And so I'm looking forward to, to making that happen at Stella because it really is, you know, we're out in the country. There are a lot of great producers out there. And and I'm, you know, the thing I've, the commitment I've made to myself is I'm not going to just put uh, an ingredient on because it's local. It has to be special. We'll see how that goes. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your Garces Foundation? Oh, yeah. So the Garces Foundation we've had for seven years. My ex-wife and I, Beatrice, had started launched the foundation and she's a cuban american i'm ecuadorian american and we had um you know we had a moment about eight years ago where there was there was a cook who was working for me at tinto very nice guy felipe lopez and he got sick and had been sick and then didn't show up to work you know we obviously were concerned asked felipe hey you know or anything we could do what you know what's the matter he's like well i, I can't go to the doctor because i'm i'm afraid i'm going to get deported and so we were like well that's a problem that's that's not a good good thing so how can we help you so we we reached out to a local doctor from the upenn upenn in, in the university of pennsylvania health system and he got him through but you know unfortunately felipe had cancer and died passed away and and probably could have been prevented had had he caught it earlier, you know, uh, six months a year, what have you. So that kind of event really Resonated launched with you guys. Yeah, yeah it, it launched us to like, okay, how can we really 
help this community give back. And so we have some programs that we run. We, we do a community health day, which is a quarterly community health day that's done at Beatrice's dental office. And there's volunteer doctors and we do cholesterol screenings, diabetes and free dental screenings and just overall health checkups for this community that doesn't have insurance or won't go to the doctor. And, and if there are issues, we point them in the right direction. Here's where you can get help for this, or here's someone you can see. And then we also do um, another core program. It's called an EREL program. So it's a restaurant training, literacy through job training, and, and it's for restaurant workers. So we do kind of, you know, kitchen and prep job training. And while we're doing that, we're teaching English. So we have a school classroom setting in South Philadelphia where this community lives. And so we have about a hundred students per semester and yeah, really like give them the tools to be able to ascend. I mean, these folks are here, they're working, working in, in hospitality. And to be honest, you know, those jobs are getting harder and harder to fill. They're, they're like, <laughs> people don't want to necessarily cook these days or wash dishes or bust tables. And so this workforce is willing to come do the work, help their families, help themselves ascend. And so we're there as just a resource to help them do that and assimilate and hopefully, yeah, move forward. That's fantastic. So, Chef, I'm, I'm looking at the time because we have been talking for a while now. Yeah. Hey, so I, I really appreciate, but I have to be conscious, you know, of your time too. So I would like to finish the uh, interview with uh, a series of rapid fire questions. Sure. Okay. okay. All right. So where I'm do ready. you have a drink or eat, you know, let's say in Philly or when you are in New York, where you are off the clock and you are not at one of your restaurants, obviously? Let's see. Unfortunately, Emmanuel, I, I like to eat at my places. So if I'm having a, because, you know, if I'm having a drink, I'll eat, I'll have a drink at Village Whiskey. We have great old fashions. We got 120 different bourbons, rice, scotches, and whiskey there. And, um, but I will give you kind of my Philly, uh, Italian, like my, my family favorite. It's like a, uh, you know, the one thing about Philadelphia is the, uh, the Italian, like red gravy restaurants. There's just some really good ones there. And it's like, I think, very traditional. It feels like like a Philadelphia staple. There's obviously a lot of great chefs cooking, exciting new food. But I like Dante and Luigi's in South Philadelphia for a good old-fashioned bangole or chicken parm. Like, just like really good stuff. So what are your top three cookbooks that inspire you the most? Oh, wow. Top three cookbooks. Well, I really love Daniel Hume's work, Eleven Madison. I think it's... It's very clean. I've always appreciated Thomas Keller's book, French Laundry. French Laundry. Yeah. And I recently, you know, cookbooks are, they're just, to me, they're, they're, they're my lifeblood. I really enjoy them. And I, you know, I'm going to recommend uh, Charles Fan's Vietnamese home cooking book. His, his recipes are fantastic. Great. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Guilty pleasure food is pizza. And it's like the worst thing I can eat. And I just love it. I can't stay away from it. It's like a... Which topping do you like? The it's most? an obsession. Uh, I'm a pepperoni and mushroom or sausage and mushroom. And wow. I'm, a, I'm a Chicago guy. So I really love tavern style. Not, not many people know about it, but it is the best. It is always considered the Chicago... You know, one of so Chicago's the best pizza. Not no, the deep, deep dish, dish, no. Tavern style is a paper, it's a paper thin pizza. It's actually very thin crust they usually dry the dough out for five days so it's almost like a cracker and then you could put good amount of toppings on there but when you bake it it still gets crispy Uh, so good wow so give me three dishes that you cannot live without cooking or eating i love my eggs so eggs anyway like eggs over easy egg scramble omelet like I, i i don't think i could live without eggs i think pasta is, you know, a, a thing that I just, man, it's tough. The carbs are like, they're, they're calling me all the time. <laughs> I don't think I could live without being able to have access to, you know, my bolognese or uh, spaghetti and meatballs. That's, it would be, be tough. Okay. And let's see, lastly. Nothing let you know. 
Lastly, uh, no, I mean, listen, I've been eating Latin food my whole life, so <laughs> I don't think I could live without uh, having sushi in my life. Sushi, nigiri, maki. Yeah, I need my, my Asian fixes from time to time, and definitely Japanese food is at the top of the list. So you've been to Spain. I've been to Spain quite a lot as well. And I think that's probably because of the name of your restaurants and so on that you have. We have maybe someone in common that we like. If I say Pedro Almodovar to you, does it resonate? <laughs> of course. Yes. One of my favorite Spanish directors at Amada, I named all of my drinks after his movies. So tie me up, tie me down, broken flowers, just to name a few. And it's, yeah, his movies are just so, they're dark. They're and dark, the, edgy. They're dark, twisted a I little love bit. It. I love that. There's a little comedy laced and Volver, in. Volver, I guess. Volver, of course, is named, it's, it's named after one of his, one of my favorite movies that he, that he's made. But it's also, you know, the double meaning, you know, in, you know, the name has been able to, carry a lot of weight so volver is to me is the return in english but it's the uh the return to maybe a food memory maybe a return to a trip that i took that inspires a dish so it really carries a lot of weight the volver i mean listen i've been through a rough patch the return of iron chef jose garces you know <laughs> so thank you very much uh, chef jose garces i really appreciate your time and being a guest on the show Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening today. It was such a honor to have Chef Jose Garces on the show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And if you did, please make sure you share this episode with other chefs or foodie friends. You can share it, you know, from your phone or you can go on the podcast website, flavorsunknown.com. Remember to subscribe to the show and please, please leave a review and a rating. In two weeks, my guest will be Chef Alison Trent from Isabel and Laurel Hardware in West Hollywood, Los Angeles. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.